This morning as we approach this passage, it is like all of Scripture, uh, necessary for us. It is for our good, for our benefit, to sanctify us, to instruct us. And I think this passage particularly uh, is needed for our time, and it is needed for our souls. Uh, And it is an encouraging passage as it is one of a few that tell us directly this is the will of God for your life. So let me read the passage for us again and uh, pray, and then we will get started. 1 Corinthians, uh, rather, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 will be our passage for this morning. So if you'd like to follow along with me, again, this morning we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how you ought to, Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore... Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious and kind. Thank you, Lord, that you are powerful, that you have made all things, that you remain in control and faithful over all things. Thank you, Father, that you have purposed to proclaim in your mercy and your grace, your kindness that would lead man to repentance, to repent of our rebellion, our ignoring of you, our denial of you. We thank you, Father, that you remain in your grace, allowing the world to continue as we see sin all around us. And Father, we see sin in our own hearts that we know deserves condemnation, that you would give us clarity to both recognize the reality of sin in the world and in ourselves, and to give us hope in the knowledge of what has been accomplished in the death and the resurrection of your Son, His promised return, and your faithful grace to give the Spirit to your people that we might live now for your glory and that your name would be declared among the nations and all that you would be exalted as you should be, and you will take a people for yourself to forever praise you in eternity. I pray, Father, you would give us clarity this morning to our own lives, the own moments in which we live, that we might do so in light of all of that truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at this passage, uh, I don't think you would deny with me where we are at as a society that sexual immorality is a problem, uh, that it is a huge problem. I don't think there would be any lack of clarity in your mind to see 
uh, based on current politics, current movements in society, and since the early 1960s in the United States, the sexual revolution which has conformed us rather to the image of God is to the image of self-worship, self-exaltation, self-pleasure, self-praise, promiscuity, and sexual morality across the board. I don't think you would deny that. If you recognize that, I want to remind you, if you turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1, God has already been clear with us that this is the state of mankind, and this will be what mankind does. That they worship themselves. They deny God. Romans 1, if you open your Bible to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24 tells us what was God's response to this? What does God do in man's sin and His own wisdom and His own failure to think He knows better what to worship than God? Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, hopefully you're following along. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women who are consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I don't want you to get lost in verses 24 to 27 with the reality of sexual immorality manifest in homosexuality. 
that the effects of immorality, the effects of unrighteousness, the effects of sin results in just homosexuality, immorality, LGBTQ, present political nonsense. Because the effects go much further. If you look on to verse 29, it says they were filled with every manner of unrighteousness. It gives an extensive list. And while many of you at Faith Bible might not include yourself in verses 24 to 27 and the reality of homosexuality, you cannot exclude yourself from the verses that follow. If you read those sins, it makes clear these are the sins of men. It is not an exhaustive list, but it is a comprehensive list that points to clarity of the evil of all men. And what he says in verse 32 is though they did not know, though they did know rather God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who do. Because here's our greatest danger, Faith Bible. Our greatest danger is that because of the darkness of the world around us, we assume that we are the light because we have a lesser sin. It is far easier for us to look at the political climate of our society, to look at the sexual morality rampant in our society, and to say, I'm not a sinner because I'm heterosexual. I'm not a sinner because I chose to get married. I'm not a sinner because I don't do the extreme of what they do. And if you're familiar with your Bible, that's exactly where Paul goes. The Spirit in leading Paul is aware of the temptation of religious people to look at the world and say, how bad can I be in comparison to them? Romans 2 tells us that. Again, follow with me. Romans 2, starting at verse 1. It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 3 Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them, that you yourself will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? As Paul is declaring the depravity of man, he is aware that the Jews reading this the religious now reading it, will be prone to see the beginning verses about all of society and assume they are okay because they're not as bad as society. The world wants to take this passage and say, who are you to judge me? They grab just that little section and say, who are you to judge? But the statement there is you who judge, you also in your judgment condemn yourself because you practice the very same thing. The statement is not, don't judge man, there's no evil. It's all judgment of man is a reflection of the guilt of man upon himself. And so there is no time where we look at sinners and we say, they are so sinful that I am holy. It is when Christians lose their sight of God and keep their eyes on man that they live in sin, justifying their sin because of greater sin. So they say, 
I might be a sinner, but I'm not as sinful as them. And because you're not dead, because you're not destroyed, you presume on God's kindness. You presume that that means you're holy and righteous without Him. And it says, you presume on His kindness when it's intended not to compel you you're better than others, but to compel you He is kind despite your sin, and that you would repent. I think it's important for us to lay that foundation as we look at a topic like this morning. Because it would be easy for us to hear, we're going to discuss sexual morality, and spend our time thinking, yes, yes, we need to condemn those evil pagans. And fail to see the grace and the glory of God and the kindness of God and the faithfulness of Christ to save and sanctify his people. We would be prone to see ourselves self-righteously with all kinds of sin in our life, ignoring the kindness of God because we're overwhelmed in hatred for sinners. Rather than presuming on his kindness, my hope is that we would recognize his kindness, his faithfulness. That we would not justify sin in ourselves because sin is so rampant in the world. And I think Paul gets to that most directly, most clearly by the Spirit in this passage this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. I don't think I need to convince you of the sexual sin of our society. I don't think you need statistics. I don't think you need ratings. I don't think you need anything, anything like that. And I don't think those are more reliable than Romans chapter 1, which already declared to us this would be the state of society in denial of Christ. But as you consider it, I want you to think of your own life and how this surrounds you. Because sexuality and the worship of sex is not just found in the most evil portions of our society. Yes, pornography is rampant. Romance novels turn immorality into fantasy. The LGBT movement is huge. It's exalted to identity, and there's proudness in our society over it. But it is also praised in our music. It is also popularized in our movies. And it is given levity or lightness in our joking. And how much time do we spend entertained by the sin of the world, justifying our own lighter sin, rather than recognizing His holiness? There is an expectation here that is throughout the Scripture that Christians will be those who are saved, justified, and they will remain on earth as those who are sanctified, saved, and purified. That they will be those who, by the grace of God, are saved from their sin. And as Hebrews says, those whom he perfected, he also ongoingly sanctifies. He brings fruit in their life. There's also an expectation in Scripture that sexual, sexual immorality will not dominate the life of a Christian. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, such were some of you. But you have been purified. You have been sanctified. We're told that it should not even be named among us. And 1 Corinthians tells us when it is clear and it is known and it is unrepented of, it should be purged from us, removed. 
Sexual immorality is not a topic that should be approached lightly, passively, or in the assumption that it's someone else's problem and not mine in our society. Because we are surrounded by it. And we cannot be content to just be more holy than the world when our call is to be holy like the Lord. And so if you look with me at the passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, let me read them for us again. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul says we request and we compel in Christ to always increase holy living for the pleasure of God. I just want you to think of those three truths which are just in these verses. One, in that we ask and we urge in Christ. Paul's not avoiding this conversation. He is asking, both requesting, and he is urging or compelling. He's saying, you need to be compelled. You need to be pushed. You need to be asked to do this. This is the way you should live. And in our society, we, we don't like anybody telling us how we should live or what we should do. We don't want to be told that we are called to something or that we need to do something. But Paul here clearly asks and urges, and he does so in Christ. Not in himself. He's not saying, I did this, you can do this. He's saying, I'm asking you and I'm urging you in Christ. And you have a biblical knowledge. If you don't, I'm going to summarize it for you. I'm not preaching on this topic this morning. But in Christ means that your sin has been paid for, that you are His, that you're redeemed, that you have been planned and purposed to save from Him. That He has made, revealed to you that your sin is what has removed you from God. And you have believed and you have confessed. And as His grace, He has then given you the Spirit which empowers you to live for His glory. And Paul says, we ask and we urge in the Lord Jesus. We ask and urge in Christ. Why? That you've received from us, you know how you ought to walk and how to please God. Always increasing in Christ. Hebrews 10, 14, as I mentioned earlier, says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. John says that everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. And you know that Christ appeared to take away sin, and in Him there's no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. He is encouraging them to move forward, to make progress, that there should not be the regular practice of sin that characterizes their, their lives the ongoing increasing of sin, but rather the ongoing increasing of righteousness, a greater and greater faithfulness. And that is the biblical expectation 
I think often as Christians, uh, sometimes we act as though the expectation is, I'm saved, I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card, I'm free in Christ, I have freedom. I can do what I want. And yes, we have much freedom in Christ. We have abundant freedom in Christ. Like He has not been a micromanager of us. Even more so as He has called the Gentiles and adopted them, the freedom of the nations, to live to glorify Christ. Not to do whatever you want, to do whatever you desire to bring Him glory according to His will. You're freed to be faithful to Him. Not to live in any way that you desire. There's two passages. I, I write them down. First Peter 2.16 and Galatians 5.13. Both of these passages, 1 Peter 2.16 and Galatians 5.13, declare our freedom from sin. That we are free in Christ. And the danger of that is we would ignore that freedom. We would act as though we're free to do whatever we want. 1 Peter 2.16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Look at both of those passages together. You have, you've been given freedom in Christ. Don't let your freedom pull you to evil. Don't let your freedom in Christ be that which causes you to cover up evil, 1 Peter. Or don't let it be that which causes you to give opportunity to evil. And then each passage gives a contrasting or a but statement of what should you do then. First Peter, live as free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Not letting your freedom in Christ allow evil, but letting your freedom in Christ make you a slave to His holiness. And in the context of First Peter, he's saying you've been called to be holy as He is holy. There's an expectation that Christians will be concerned with the holiness of God and they will live for His glory. The second one in Galatians says the same thing. Essentially, your freedom is not to give opportunity to sin, but what are you to take opportunity with? But through love, serve one another. See, His will has been made clear that we would live to be holy like God, and we would live to serve one another as a church. That we would declare with our lives that Christ has redeemed us. He has paid the penalty. He is holy. He is worthy of our praise. We want to do everything we can to please Him. And He has redeemed us as a body where we live that out together as a declaration to the world of the manifest goodness and glory of God. His will is very clear. Be holy as He is holy and love one another as He has loved you. That's the, the quick summary of His will. And both of those can be distracted if you assume your freedom is for anything else than to live for the glory of God and to do so in service to His people for His name to be praised. He has not been unclear. We just don't like His clarity. We, we talk about the Bible having too many gray areas when really what we mean is we have a lot of freedom in Christ. But our freedom is constrained by the fact that we are slaves to God and called to serve one another. 
and we ought to live as so. And if this frustrates you, I would ask you, do you really have hope in Christ? Because Paul says here in verse 1, again back at 1 Thessalonians, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. See, the expectation of a Christian is they want to live to please God. Do they do so perfectly? No. By no means do they do so perfectly. But they put to death sin because it has been put to death in Christ. And they rejoice in what they have been told of Christ, what they know of Christ, how to live for Christ, and to live to the pleasure of God. It's why sin wrecks Christians so much, why they're so convicted often, is because they know they should live for the pleasure of God. And they fail to consider the faithfulness of God to pay for their sin and to move forward. And that's why two weeks ago I preached on the discipline of God and His desire to move you forward and progress you and His love for you, His care for you. Your sin's already been paid for. But he tells these Thessalonians, you know, you've had clear instruction. You've been given clear truth of what you are to do and how you are to live. And then he encourages them, which brings my heart joy because we are in a very, uh, if you're familiar with your Bible and the letters, you have the book of Philippians written to a church that's super faithful and encouraging them. And then you have the book of 1 Corinthians that's written to a church that, man, you guys just need to get this together. Well, in our society, I think we have a lot more 1 Corinthian life than Philippian life. And I think that's why we need to go through 1 Corinthians so we know how to answer the issues of our time. But as a church, I'm so blessed that we have a much more Philippian church. We don't have a church that is running rampant in all kinds of things and is confused about all kinds of things. Yes, we have sinners. Yes, we have those who struggle with sin, but they are saints who long to please God. I am thankful that's the underlying movement of our church. Faithful Christians who Paul could faithfully say to, just as you are doing, that you do so all the more. For you know the instructions that were given and that we gave you through Christ. And so Paul is encouraging them. He is confident of their faithfulness, and he's confident they're going to continue in faithfulness. And so he then moves to our next passages that he not only requests and compels them in Christ, not only does he call them to increase in holy living, uh, but lastly, sorry, I didn't really hit this point. I want to, for the pleasure of God. I mentioned it. But it's for the pleasure of God. And that is the ongoing theme of Scripture, that Christians rejoice in doing the will of God. They rejoice in bringing God pleasure. Not to gain their righteousness, because they've been given righteousness. And their love for Him. They strive for that. And I put in your handout, 1 Timothy 4, 6-10, that he says, Rather than getting lost in myths and silly, irreverent arguments, have nothing to do with those things. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Because while bodily training has some value, its value is not unending. But godliness has value in every way. Godliness has value in this life and the life to come. And this is the description I use often when I taught junior hires. Junior high girls are very, and boys, are very concerned about their appearance and how am I going to look and what am I going to do. And so you can spend your whole life right now in vanity of godliness, or rather in vanity of worldly training, worldly functioning, worldly work to make yourself appealing. But at some point, you're going to be weak and frail, and the only time a head is going to turn to look at you is when you fell and broke your hip. 
because they need to help you up. Like that's the reality of life. You will not remain in youthful zeal forever. No matter how hard you work to be fit and to be faithful in that, to be a good steward of your body, that is not a bad thing. You will die healthy. But you should give yourself. You should strain. You should fight for. You should be disciplined and planned. You should talk to one another about your plan. You should share with one another to encourage one another how to pursue that plan, how to get better at that plan. Encourage one another in your progress of that plan. And I'm not talking about physical exercise. I'm not talking about your diets and your macros and your micros and your no carbs and your all carbs. I'm talking about pursuing righteousness. What is of the greater value, he says, that you would be as planned, as disciplined, as regimented, as thoughtful, as intentional in that as you are in what has some perishing value. That you would strive. Why? Because you're living to please God. You're living to please Him. And then Paul moves in this passage to tell them directly, what is the will of God for your life then? If they are to be asked and urged to live in Christ, to do what Christ has commanded them, to obey them, to do what He has said is faithful, that they're to take the commands of Scripture and say, God has given us clarity. We're to love others. We're to love God. What are they to do? When they're lost for, what is the will of God for my life? What, what should I do? How can I love God and love others? Paul points back, because of their society, very quickly to one clear thing they must recognize. He says, if you're trying to remember what the will of God for your life is, verse 3, for this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, living for the will of God, abstaining in holiness and honor. Now, I know it is easy to think our society is so far gone. How could it be so evil? But if you do a little bit of history homework, the extent in which our society has embraced homosexuality is only on the verge of the Greek world. I think it is the grace of God when he says in 1 Timothy that at the proper time he sent his son. He sent his son at a time where it was so dark, so evil, paganists had run so rampant that the clarity of Christ magnified to the entire region and then onward now to the whole world. The grace and the glory and the kindness and the compassion and the salvation necessary for Christ. When the world gets dark, the light of Christ is only more clear. And it was far darker in Thessalonica and Corinth than it is even in the God-forsaken California. Far darker, far more evil, far more acceptance. And yes, we are on the verge. We are moving in that direction. Should God continue in His kindness of allowing us the results of our sin, it could only get worse. But it has not even reached the level of the accepted orgies, the accepted worship of deities in immorality, the accepted social norms of husbands and wives and concubines and prostitutes. 
the accepted and openly practiced immorality as both just the world and society and religion living for themselves. And so if we are to live in this society with clarity, what better, what grace of God that he points these societies, these Christians called to recognize this is the will of God for your life. As you are surrounded by the opposite, don't forget, as you're trying to figure out what is the will of God for your life, let your mind have clarity. This is it. Not it alone, but it, the will of God for you. He says, this is your sanctification. And that statement of sanctification could be translated at this point, holiness. This is your holiness. We often think of sanctification as only a process of being set apart. But the word holds the meaning of both one who's being set apart at times and one who just is set apart. One who is made holy. And here he says, this is the will of your God. This is your holiness. This is a clear identifier of you and them. This is a clear marker that you belong to him. If you're looking for something that will make my life clear that my hope and my love is in Christ, in our society and any time in history, he says sexual purity is a marker. To use sex in the way God designed, for the purposes He designed, with the affections He's intended, is a serious marker. Because the opposite is God giving man over to their desires, to their rebellion. And so as you think about these things, what should we do? We should consider the kindness of God that He urges and compels us and calls us to live holy, that He's been clear with us, He's given us instruction and direction in Christ, and we are assumed to live for the pleasure of God, always seeking to increase. And so when we see the world around us, our first thought should not be Corinth or Thessalonica or Southern California is so evil. It should be, I'm aware of the will of God for my life. I know what He has called in holiness. And it is to be pursuing Him, His faithfulness, to abstain from sexual immorality. To abstain. Abstain means to flee from, to remove yourself from, to get as far from, to be distant from. And Christian, this is often our problem. We have so many eyes on the world and so few of our time on the eyes of Christ. That the question we're asking is not how far can I get from sin, but how close am I allowed to be to sin? We ignore the command that says abstain from sexual immorality. Remove yourself from it. Flee from it, other passages say. To be as far from it as possible. And we say, how close can I get? We again play the game of comparison. We, we look at homosexuality and we say, if that's how far it is, what's the big deal if I'm making out with my girlfriend? What's the big deal if I'm sleeping with a woman I'm not married to? What's the big deal of a little bit of lust, a little bit of temptation, a little bit of pornography? Who am I hurting? Because we have our eyes on the world rather than Christ. And we then, rather than thinking Christ has commanded, we flee as far as we can with the light behind us instead of in front of us and clarity on the darkness, we say, well, I can still see. I could get a little bit closer. I could still move toward the darkness because the light is bright enough at my back rather than the clarity to look and to run toward the light to say, no, I want to abstain. 
I want to be set apart. I want to be faithful. The questions of our immorality is too often, how close can I get rather than how far can I flee? God did not save you so you could get away with sin. He saved you to get you away from sin. From the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And once and for all, he will remove us from the presence of sin. Christian, do not be lulled by the presence to assume it has power over you. Flee from it. Abstain. Let yourself be as far removed as possible. Take your instruction from Christ about what is good and what is faithful and what is holy and what sex is for. Not from the world, but from the word. From what God has said. This is the will of God for your life. That you are separate from the world and you abstain, you keep distance from, you avoid and you flee from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. That he says this is a matter, sexual immorality. Notice what he says. Sexual immorality, which is a junk term for using sex in a way that is impure, unfaithful. But he says, each one of you needs to know how to control your own vessel is the actual word used. He says, your own body that you would know how to control your body in regards to your desires, your affections, what you're after. He says, let each one of you know that each one of you ought to know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. How should you control your own body as one that is holy, set apart from God, and one that is honorable? That you should live, Christian, as you are. Yes, outside of Christ, your life was consumed by sin. You were not holy and you were not honorable. You were, like Romans 1, unholy and dishonorable. But in Christ's grace, in His power, in His salvation, you are declared both holy, separate as His, and honorable, worthy to be saved. Not because of your worth, and the world will tell you, you will be plagued by this sin and you'll be plagued by these things if you don't have self-worth. You have to value yourself. And then they will tell you when you have self-worth, you can abuse these things in all kinds of powerful ways. You can live in this sexual sin empowered. What the Word of God tells you is that you are holy because of Christ and your life is one that is worthy or to be honored because of Christ. 1 Corinthians says that He has paid a penalty for your sin. That you are not your own. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. 1 Peter says you have been redeemed from the sinful ways of your forefathers. Not with silver or gold or perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That His perfect righteousness paid for your unrighteousness. And so the value of that is not chosen by your perception or your desire. It is chosen by whoever has control of the market in what they value. Think about modern art. I'm going to make an unpopular statement. It is not worth anything but being thrown away. It's trash. Amen. (laughs) Some people are ready to amen that. Where does it get its value? Like some of our kids are running around with Pokemon cards and they're debating each other how valuable they are. 
literally a piece of paper with someone's drawing on it. How valuable is it? Its value is only what someone will pay for it. And it is, in our economy, a fiat economy. It, it, it doesn't actually have any foundation for value. It's just how many people have enough money and enough income and aren't willing to share in such a way they've hoarded it up and they'll give it for trash. That is not the way your value has been purchased in Christ. It's not the perishable things. It's not the fading fiat currency of our society or this world. Not even those things that we think is valuable and lasting because the gold will melt, the silver will melt, and what is eternal is Christ and his righteousness. Your worth is not determined by your past life, your present life, your parents, your faithfulness and your unfaithfulness in sexual immorality. Your worth is determined by Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. He has declared your worth and value by the cost which you have been bought that is not your own, but the precious, righteous blood of Christ. And so when you consider, how do I live in holiness and honor knowing I am sinful? Christian, you must consider your holiness and honor is not something you have earned it's something you've been given. And you live to make that known. You're not plagued by your previous sin because you know how to control your own body and holiness and honor because what has been revealed to you is the holiness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ given to you that you therefore would abstain. Verse 5, then we have the contrast, the clarity for spirit-filled Christians. How are you to live? Well, then first he gives a contrast. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress his brother or wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. One, not in the passions of the world. You know, as a Christian, that you are called to self-control. We often think of the fruit of the Spirit and we think, man, to be led by the Spirit means you're just kind of free and fancy. You kind of live in such a way that you go, I don't know what the Spirit wants. Maybe He wants me to have Chinese food. Maybe He wants me to have In-N-Out. I'm just going to live by the Spirit. I'm going to start driving that way. And whenever I'm compelled, I want that. I'm going to trust the Spirit is leading me. And I'm going to tell my friends, look, I know you think I should be having Chinese food, but I prayed about this. I really feel like God has led me in this. I'm going to have In-N-Out. That's the Spirit's will for my life. I'm using a very silly example, but maybe in your own life you could put things where you've kind of placed in there and you've assumed that the Spirit's leading is won by just your passion and your zeal. What we often forget in that list of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Is one who knows and hears the truth and is not compelled by their desires, their wants, or their pleasures, but God's commands. One who says, what he says is righteous, whether I want to do it or not, I will do it. I'll have self-control to do what he has said. And what he says is unrighteous, whether I want to do it or not, I will not. I will control my own body. 
And Christian, the Gentiles, those who do not know God, not you Gentiles who know God, those Gentiles who do not know God, what do they live by? The passions of lust. Their impulses driven by desires and want. And he says, not in the passions and lusts by those who don't know God. Not one compelled just by the urges. So Christian, this is, this is, this is our issue. We, we talk about sexual morality, and many of us treat it as though, because our society is so far gone, you have no choice but to live in sexual sin. And we communicate things like, people are just going to do this. I remember as a young man, just getting saved, overwhelmed by sexual morality in my life. And going to another young man who I loved and respected, and I said, look man, my life is rampant in all of this. I need help. And this was a kid, I looked to his family, I looked to everyone there to say, these are Christians, these are faithful, these are the people after God. I told him, I've been a liar, and my life is overwhelmed by this. And he said, that's okay, all guys are going to do that. And praise God, there were other men in my life to say, that's a lie. Such were some of you. Not such will be until he returns. Such were. You do not have to live in sexual immorality. You might have passions, and you might have urges, and you will be tempted in sin, but you do not have to act out in sexual immorality. You can control your body. You can remove things. Jesus is very explicit about this, that this is a root issue, not a fruit issue. Notice he doesn't say, you don't participate in the actions of the Gentiles. He says, no, that these are led by passions and lusts of the Gentiles. That their root, their passion and lust is what's driving them to all the sexual immorality. And if you treat sexual sin as a fruit issue and not a root issue, you will never have victory. If you treat it as, I just have to abstain from these things and not do them, you will never have victory. If you don't look to change your passions to the pleasure of God and to desiring His will and His glory, and say, I'm not going to live just led by every passion, every impulse. I'm going to have self-control over my impulses and passions because what the passage goes on to say, I have the Spirit of God. I'm going to seek to be faithful Not let the passions of lust consume me and conform my body and self-control to not participate. From personal testimony, it might take months. It might take years. But you do not have to live under the burden and the action of sexual sin. Yes, sin in desire might remain in your life. But sin in practice of function, the fruit, does not have to. Christian man, you do not have to look at pornography. You do not have to lust after and then act in affections towards other women. And Christian women, the same for you. You do not have to look at pornography. You do not have to give yourself to sleazy romance novels. You do not have to hand your affections over to some man who is not your husband. 
You don't have to give your body to sexual sin. That is not the burden of living in the presence of sin. You can be freed from that. Yes, temptation might run. Yes, your passions might have desires. But you know God. You do not have to live by your passions. You can live according to His will. And I'm not saying that's easy. Jesus doesn't state it as something easy. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members that your whole body, than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Many are happy to hide the fruit of their sin and never address the root of their sin. They're willing to live in secret, hidden places, giving in to their passions, giving in to their sin, because the fruit is not seen except by those who are most intimate to you. And if God is gracious to others, that you would be found out and exposed and saved from your sin. But too many are willing to say, it's not practical for me to get rid of my cell phone. It's not practical for me to cut myself off from the internet. It's not practical for me to take a 45-minute drive a different way home so I don't pass by that house. It's not practical for, for me to not be alone in my house. It's not practical for for me to not know and be aware of the movies and the music and what everyone else is participating in. I need to be a light and a clarity there. But Jesus says, if something is driving you towards temptation and sin, cut it off. What is he doing? He's attacking the root, not the fruit. He's saying the Pharisees who said, I don't commit adultery. I'm not like these pagans. I'm not going to these religious orgies. I'm not doing any of that. Sure, as they walk by, I'm lusting after them. The the religious would control themselves outwardly, but inwardly, they want no more than to be involved in all of it. And Jesus says, you condemn them because of their adultery. What you ignore is your own passions already proclaim you're condemned. And you need a Savior. You need to be redeemed. Jesus in grace points out to them, you don't love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind because you won't even give up that which is driving you from Him. You won't even flee from it. You don't think it's practical. He says, no, you know God. Don't be led by the lusts and the passions. Jesus says, remove whatever must be removed that you would not give in to the root of sin, not to bear fruit in sin, but you would clarify and attack it at the root. And he gives then a reason. Verse 6, that no one transgress against his brother in this matter. That no one sins against his brother in this matter. Sexual sin and sexual morality is not a harmless sin. 
The reality of sexual sin in our society is it is harming all of our society. And many of you, like me, you, you know the past of your sexual sin harmed your marriage. And you lean on and you rest in the grace of God and the redemption of that. And you more and more move in holiness to know that He is faithful. You can deceive yourself to think that sexual sin and what you can hide more easily than ever in our society is just you. But it transgresses your brothers. Not only in that it justifies for young men and others and young women and others that sexual sin is okay, and it's just what people do, and at least we're not as bad as them. But sexual sin in our society, particularly in that which is hidden in pornography, is funding global sex trafficking. It is an abuse towards women and towards men and towards children. And you think, what is the big deal if I'm just looking at some pictures? You are perverting for your mind what sex is defined for. You're letting your heart be driven so far from God that many men, when they are married, they don't even want the real thing because they have let themselves been so trained in the lie, so deceived, that the real is not satisfying. Because what they're after is not the glory of God. It's their own ever-increasing sinful satisfaction. Do not be deceived that sexual immorality, even practiced in hidden ways, is not a transgression against your brother. And do not be deceived that the Lord does not know and does not see. What does he say? In both this passage and Hebrews 13, that says the marriage is to be held in honor by all and the marriage bed to be undefiled. He says, the Lord is the avenger of such. The greater warning here is not what it will do to you relationally. The greater warning is not its greater effects on society. The greater warning is not how difficult it will make your marriage, not how apathetic it will make you to life, not how much it will suck your soul from you in the present time. All of those things are true. But the statement here is not it will take away your best life now. It is that he is the avenger of such. He does not allow the sexually immoral and idolaters and the greedy and the swindlers and the disobedient to parents and the ruthless in the kingdom of heaven. And those words are followed up with, such were some of you. Do not be condemned with the world. Do not lighten this, that the biggest issue is what it's going to do to your life now. The Word of God says, you must remember this because He is the avenger in all of these things. As we told you and warned you beforehand, solemnly, that He will judge the sexually immoral. Flee to Him. Because you have help. You have help. And it is, it is, yes, the community of the church. It is being accountable and confessing to other men and other women. It is attacking sin, not at the fruit, getting caught in it. And then now, your whole life is turned upside down because you were trying to hide it, and God in His love won't let you. God in His grace will expose you. And how many men and women in our church who the grace of God, though they were trying to hide it, let it be exposed that they would be redeemed. And they would love to compel you. Don't do it. Confess. Make your sin known. Attack it at the root. Let it be clear that your conscience wants Christ and to flee from sin. That is a great help to you. 
He has called us together, all of the language in this is plural, you, all, us, plural. He's called us, not for impurity, but for holiness. Lean on one another. Lean on the plurality of the church. But that's not the greatest reason he gives here. Verse 7 says, For God has not called us, all of us, to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Whoever says, this is Jake's opinion, Faith Bible's too freaked out about sexual sin, it's okay, why not tamper in it? This is not about man, this is about God. He is the judge, he is the avenger. And the preface left at the end is, who else is he? Look at verse 8. Is he just the avenger? Is he just the judge? No, God who gives you his Holy Spirit. He who has commanded you to be free from sexual immorality is he who has enabled you to be freed from sexual immorality. He is not commanding you based on your will and your power, your passions and his strengths. He's commanding you based on his will and his power, his passions and his strengths and his purpose to call for himself a people for his own possession, holy and righteous and his. So Christian, do not be confused as though God was not clear with you about what you are to live for. Do not let the present state of darkness in the world blind you as though you were unaware that you are called to be holy. Do not let their passions and their lust and your previous transgression condemn you when Christ has redeemed you. And do not let your former life compel you that you cannot, because he who commanded is also he who enables. And he has given you the Spirit. He is perfect in his affection and his plans. He does not forget he does not use more time than he needs, nor less. He is always faithful. He plans and purposes for you. And so as I assumed I had until 10.55 to preach, because that's what I've had for the last few months, now realize I had until 10.45. Good news is, it's only 10.54. So I'm a minute ahead of the schedule that I thought I was on. And nine minutes over the current. So I'm not going to talk about that anymore. I'm going to pray. Daniel's going to lead us in communion. I'm going to go encourage the children's workers that they are doing the Lord's work and they are faithful servants. And then we will together participate in communion. So Daniel will give instructions on that. Uh, I just want to remind you of what he has said this morning. Because of the blood of Christ and the purchase of Christ, he has given you his spirit to be empowered and enabled in Christ, to live wholly for Him.